Welcome to Art Laws. I'm Alex Zappa. And I'm Robin Rosenfeld. Art Laws is a podcast that explores cultural outlaws, both present and past, from artists and filmmakers to musicians and writers. April Gornick is an American painter known for her dynamic and powerful landscapes. Gornick's large-scale luminous paintings of seas, skies, forests, and horizons evoke both moments of transience and calm, volatility, and eruption. Yet her vivid canvases are never literal, but rather imagined and emotional spaces. While April focuses on light and colors of the landscape, her evocative use of contrast brings a sense of aliveness and psychological drama to her work, thanks to her careful and precise rendering. Gornick's fascination with light distinguishes her art. She describes light as the beating heart of your eyes. April Gornick's work is included in major museum collections, including the Metropolitan Museum of Art, MoMA, the Museum of Fine Arts Houston, and the Smithsonian American Art Museum in Washington, D.C. We spoke in depth with April about her unique creative process and artistic journey. She launched her professional career as a New York artist during the dizzying, male-dominated height of the 80s art boom. We also spoke to April about her recent efforts to revive cinema in Sag Harbor. A longtime resident of Sag Harbor, Long Island, Gornick is also a co-founder of The Church, a nonprofit artist residency, creative center, and exhibition space. We welcome April Gornick to Art Laws. So April, I think of you as one of the preeminent landscape painters of our time in the contemporary art world. And when I look at your paintings and drawings, I also think of the other great masters of the landscape like Andrew Wyeth, Winslow Homer, J.M.W. Turner, and even Georgia O'Keeffe in a more abstract way. But you have this energy and aliveness and turbulence and light and something almost primal or primeval in your work that distinguishes you as an artist. Why do you think that landscape painting is so integral to understanding the world around us? That's a good question and just a little one. <laughs> <laughs> landscape has always, for me, it first intuitively and then more self-consciously. And by that, I don't mean in an awkward sense. I mean, just that everything that I know about my work and the way I've approached it and what I do know about why I want to make landscapes has to do with something that started off completely intuitively and then became more and more um, known to me. I was able to verbalize what I was doing better and better. But from the beginning, landscape seemed like this thing that was mysteriously speaking to me. And not just that, but I also felt like I recognized just a part of my being in projecting out onto landscape. and. For me, that's an essentially abstract behavior and something that is very human and can't imagine it being in any kind of way something that an animal would do. But landscape represents the thing that's the furthest outside of myself. So trying to define myself or express myself with the thing that's the most foreign to me seems at once for me logical because it would it would be a stretch obviously and then at the same time it also seems like kind of a crazy notion and i don't think that that people define themselves by landscape the way that i do but my definition that i'm talking about is more an emotional definition than a 
literal definition, but it is it is just like my expressive subject matter for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. As a viewer, your work for me borders somewhere in between the real and the imagined. And, and for me, the paintings can almost be viewed as both inner and outer landscapes. And I'm wondering if you would say that's accurate for you. And how does your imagination play a part in your paintings? Well, I would just say yay, because that's exactly what that's exactly what I hope that people will feel looking at them is that they they are expressing something that's inner and outer at the same time. I talk sometimes about trying to locate myself in the world. And I think that that's an incredibly difficult challenge for all people. And for me, I've somehow located myself emotionally and spiritually in this thing that's very outside of myself. And so in a way, I want to say naturally, it would be both inside and inside and outside experience for someone else that, you know, and that's, that all depends on if someone projects onto them this, the way that I hope that they will, mm-hmm. or the way that I do. And that's just a gamble that all artists take, that your work will be seen the way you feel it. And I don't mean the way I intended it, because I do try to build into every painting the complexity of what emotions really are, what a relationship really is. And that has to do with being misguided, misinterpreting, over-exaggerating, like all the wonderful things that make people human have a lot to do with those kinds of misjudgments that we all naturally make. It's part of the complexity and the wonder of the thing to be a little off and a little accurate at the same time, I think. There's a truth in, I hope that there's like a a directness and a truth about trying to make things straightforward in my work that is important to me. I mean, when I think about something being true and in that case, it would be trying to make something that holds enough information to actually make an environment for someone to have reactions in and to, as I was saying, to project onto, you need to build in a lot of complexity. So I would hope that a sunny day would might have an edge of, I want to say something ominous because it's not necessarily that dramatic, but that there would be just little, little decisions that I make when I'm painting them that affect the way that they're read and make them more complex than simply a scene or simply a picture. And I mean, not that people can't look at them and look at them just like that, too. That's that's a risk that I take. But when you said that you see them as both inner and outer, that was incredibly satisfying for me because that is what I'm going for. You know, it's you bring up the idea of emotion and truth. And there's a work that you did from 2012, and it's called Light After the Storm. And it's a very, as you know, it's a very volatile seascape. And, you know, I grew up on Long Island and, you know, growing up, we would always, uh, and I know, you know, from, from being on Long Island in the summer and in the winter, we get these storms that come in and this work for me brings up so many memories of, of being fearful of the ocean and just being fearful of, of, you know, I grew up between the Bay and the ocean. So there's always this fear that they would meet and they have before. Mm. So there's so much complexity and chaos. And I was just curious that when you look at an image like that, I mean, does this hark back to any memories or fears that you have from when you were when you were growing up, or is there anything behind that sort of chaos and volatility that you were trying to express? 
Well, yes, definitely. And I would say even, even a, a field with a dark cloud behind it could have a certain kind of resonance that feels like the ocean's potential for danger, for being a dangerous place. I love the I love the way that the ocean is so indifferent. It's mm. so repetitive. It's so indifferent. It just keeps going, going. And I would never want to live right on the ocean. I can't believe people want to. I we live right now in a place that has marshes surrounding us, and it's it's near the bay, and it's near the sound, and it's it's even when it, it's a big nor'easter, it's still relatively calm compared to the ocean. The ocean to me is like absolutely terrifying. I mean, it's, it has such visible power pretty much at all times. I think even when it's not turbulent, there's a kind of weight that I think reads from it, like the, 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 that massive amount of water, just the sheer weight of all of that to me is so intimidating and extraordinary. And I marvel at it and I'm scared of it. And I'm also fascinated by it. And I'm also thrilled by it. I mean, when it's when it's struck by light, when when elements of a landscape clash, like when when light catches um, a wave in a storm, it's it's an amazing volume of information there. It's an amazing, thrilling detail. And thank God for photography that someone like me is able to use usually collages of photographs to put a painting together so that I can make something that evokes all of those things. Yes, I find the ocean frightening. And I grew up near, but certainly not on Lake Erie, because um, I'm from Cleveland. Mm -hmm. And I used to go down there with my dad and look at the lake, which is a very treacherous lake. It's prone to squalls and is probably the most dangerous of all the Great Lakes because it's so shallow. So when a when a storm comes up, it can it can whip it into a crazy frenzy in minutes. And it's it always seemed to me to be a place that, you know, the the extension of the water to the horizon to me was a terrifying <laughs> picture. Right. Um, just the just the immensity of it. So is is painting it conquering it in any way? No, I don't think I'm conquering anything. I don't think I've ever conquered <laughs> the ocean in a painting. I think I, I think I. Well, well, I mean, I mean, more psychologically, is it is it a way of dealing with you know with fear in a way of of I mean it more in the mind, not so much as 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 um. You know. Yes, I I know what you mean, but I've actually and I I respect that um, impulse, but I don't have it like right, my right, impulse right. in in trying to depict all of things those kinds of things is too give give some sort of weight and reality to what I'm seeing on it. I mean, painting is so amazing. I'm putting all of that on a two-dimensional surface by making a picture of it that imitates it and with certain amounts of abstraction in the painting itself. I mean, how crazy is that notion that we can do that? It's, it still amazes me and I love I love space and light like the best. And that's the other reason that landscape is just right for me because I yearn to like pack space and light into something that's only like seven and a half by nine feet. Like that to me is thrilling, but it, I wouldn't call that conquering. I would, I would, it's almost like making truces with it or just 
just oh. stopping it so I can be there with it. And that's another thing that I want to offer to a viewer that you could look at my landscapes and not necessarily, definitely, hopefully not think this is about one particular thing. This is about one emotion. I'd rather it shifted the way that it shifts for me and just holds a lot of possibilities. So it's kind of more of a, definitely more of a truce than some notion of conquering. <laughs> so interesting. Well, you had once said that art is both a revelation and exposure. And I'm curious if you can maybe elaborate on that a little bit. Well, I think, I think I meant um, self-exposure. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm, I mean, the awkwardness of having an opening where you reveal all these things that you've made to people. I mean, they always seem to me like I'm being so bald about my emotions and who I am and <laughs> what I really think about everything. And of course, they're, writ they're written in an incredibly abstract subject matter. So probably not, except that I'm also amazed at how many people respond to them in the way that I want them to, including the contradictory kind of aspects, because I'll look at the same painting that I made two different ways, as well as other people tend to. But the revelation, I mean, just, I do really wanna make things that are like really beautiful and kind of amazing if possible. So that's, that's my big ambition more than for instance, as Alex just said something about conquering, it's I like that idea, but that's not where I go. I go more into the into the wanting to make people go, wow, that's that's a wild picture, that's a weird image, or that's a that's an amazing light. So and I think you really accomplished that. It, they're awesome and breathtaking and astounding. And yeah. I mean, it's weird to say this, but like I think of, you know, I've seen your work. Um, up close many times and the scale is so immense sometimes. And I think of like, and, and this is going to sound bizarre, but it's almost like the same experience seeing like your Dune paintings, for instance, like seeing a Rothko and there was a spiritual element to Rothko. Do you? Yes, I mean, yes, 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 yes. Okay. I would love to know more about, about that side. Yeah. No, I just, I mean, I was raised Catholic. So somewhere, I don't know, I'm not saying it was, it was the nuns credit or their fault. <laughs> but, um, I, you know, I just have this strong kind of fantasy or fanciful or whatever life. I mean, I'm an artist, I'm, I'm a dreamer. So trying to, trying to make a painting that has, you don't try to make a painting that has spirituality, I think. To me, that's such a very, very personal thing. And I'm not a member of any organized religion at this point, but I understand that people, when you're, when you're projecting onto something and you start to connect, like just connecting to something to me is like a spiritual activity. And I think that that's why people like yoga and all these things that give you a kind of a outside of yourself connection. But for me, it's to try to, I keep saying the word hold, but I, but I do really mean it. That something that actually holds something that that talks about the, the temporality of life too. I mean, all of my paintings are about vulnerability and time being such a fleeting thing. Mm -hmm. Paintings stop time better than almost anything. And I think that Rothko, the way that Rothko's paintings shimmer and hold light and hold color 
are, I mean, they're so physical. That's, that's the other thing to me. To me, works of art are so alive. They're really not just pictures of something. I mean, a good painting has, it has incredible animation. It's really something that was brought to life by the artist and paintings keep echoing that down through the centuries, which is so amazing to me. Um, and again, to go back to that idea of like forcing the ocean onto a relatively small two-dimensional surface for, for instance, um, and then knowing that that's going to hold that there for however long before we all have a conflagration because of our bad behavior as humans. <laughs> but never mind that right now, knowing that there's that power that painting has that people anyway can respond to is is an astonishment and it and that to me and because it's because you're stopping time you're stopping everybody stops a painting people are always interested in like how do you decide when a painting is done but to me usually a painting is done when it when my interference with it when my behavior when my painting has to stop because it actually sort of pulls away from me. I can actually feel it become this thing that I can't, I can't go back into. Like it closes itself like hmm. own world. So I kind of trust that obviously when that happens because it seems like a almost a directive. But to me, that's the point where it gets power and it also begins to show its fragility in a powerful way because it's showing its temporalness because you arrived at this one moment where, I mean, the implication of having, having arrived at that one moment is that there's an innate fragility and that's all about life and death to me. Hmm. <laughs> and and in a sense, birth <laughs> sounds like too, and, well, which is life, life giving and, and. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, and that's a spiritual thing too. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting as you talk about aliveness and a painting having a life of its own in your commencement address for the class of 2015 at your alma mater, Cleveland Institute of Art, you mentioned a teacher of yours, Julian Stanchek. What was it about this teacher's understanding of painting and how to look at painting that made such a lasting impression? Oh, he was a great teacher. Um, it, you know, he was actually... Um, fascinating because I had him first for drawing class and he would walk around the class like like a military man and he would come up and he would he would sort of like tap on your drawing he wouldn't draw on it luckily but he would sort of tap on it and he'd say look at this area that you drew it's completely dead you didn't care about it at all you cared about this you cared about that and he'd like point to other areas of the drawing where invariably he was absolutely right. You were really engaged. You loved what you were doing. You were connected to it. It's very physical, you know, making art, drawing and all of those things. It's, so you'd be feeling this very physical connection. And then you get to a point, like usually for many people, it's a background or something like that. And you just kind of fill it in. But he spotted that from a mile away. And it always used to blow my mind. So when I teach I always do that with students' work because attention and and staying in the moment um, in that manner is like absolutely essential to making art that's worth something. If you if you don't do that, then 
you will have a lot of dead areas and you'll have a ultimately a at least a lame, if not a very dead <laughs> painting mm -hmm. in front of drawing in front of you. So so he was great at that. That was his, that was the main thing that blew my mind about him. He was a very incredibly meticulous person in his own work. He was an op art painter. And op art's been having a bit of a revival, I would say, over the last couple of years. My understanding is you wanted to be a conceptual artist and you were working with photography and you had mentioned. Oh, yeah. Yes. Do you want to talk about that and then and your yeah, move I and transition? to Nova Scotia, college well, art design. Yeah, you kindly mentioned the Cleveland Institute of Art, which I attended for four years because it's a five-year school. It's my own alma mater, and it is a kind of alma mater, but it's not the school from which I graduated. So when I was at my, my fourth and next to last year there, I just became really kind of frustrated and bored and I wanted to go elsewhere. And by the way, it was only a five-year college. Mm -hmm. um, scheme because they would make more money. Why else would you have that? I never questioned it when I was when I was there. It was only much later that I thought, wait, why was that five years? Um, so anyway, the the hottest school at, at the time, and by the time I'd, I'd had Julian Stanchak and uh, other excellent teachers there. And what, by the time I got to my fourth year, I was starting to become really interested in conceptual art and Marxism and and you know the the structuralist philosophers Claude Levi Strauss and Jean Piaget the great um, semiotician and so I started reading all that stuff and and nobody was interested there but the Nova Scotia College of Art and Design had an article in it called Is this the greatest art school in North America by Saul Lewitt who was arguing that it was and. It's true. I, so I, I just impulsively transferred there. I literally like put in my application in June that summer, got accepted and just like went. <laughs> so I just sort of quit the Cleveland Institute of Art and ended up there. And there I had a Marxism class and I was trying to be a good conceptual artist, but I was a really bad conceptual artist. I was like really romantic, very romantic conceptual artist. And I was imitating um, my teacher, my primary teacher, there was a guy named John Fernie and I was sort of imitating his work and I was just kind of flailing around, but that's what school is for, you mm -hmm. know, making mistakes and making confused bad art. And uh, eventually like it was after I, after I got out of school and then I went to graduate in, with my BFA and then I um, took a couple of months off and went to Europe and then I came back and then eventually moved to New York, but in the course of having gotten back from Europe and moving, I just started to paint landscapes sort of out of the blue, which was, I would, I can only say incredibly embarrassing. <laughs> I had started to do that, but I was, I was working in a little studio that I'd rented and I was waitressing and nobody was looking over my shoulder. And so I just kept making them. And why, but why do you say embarrassing? Because it was not what you anticipated doing at, at that time oh, as a conceptual oh, no. artist or? Not even, not only because at that time, I mean, to make, to actually paint landscapes was so like retardatory. You just wouldn't. It was just so unpopular. Right. I mean, it's, it's been fantastic. The last um, 
I would say five or so years in the art world, there's been this incredible resurgence of figurative art, um, in part thanks to the extraordinary um, re-examined Black artists like, like Harry James Marshall and people like that. There's oh, right. a real absolute resurgence of interest in figurative art and a kind of a blessing of it. And thank you, Jesus, you know, it's been great. So, um, but at the time, painting was dead and you just, and if, and if anything were not to be done, it would be anything that could smack of, you know, whatever calendar art or something like that. So landscape. Uh. So I, I was, when we moved, when I met Eric and then um, we moved to New York and when we got to New York, I thought I can't keep painting landscapes. No, here I am in the place that I've always wanted to be, trying to be a real artist and I absolutely have to figure out something else to do. So I started to paint interiors, which were just like, I was just like way off the mark. I mean, I felt nothing for them. And then I finally went back to trying to figure out landscape again for myself because that was really where my heart was. At least I'm very, very lucky that as a young artist, I did have this very clear emotional response to something that meant something to me that could inspire me that could allow me to make the mistakes you have to make to be an artist and to work out your vision mm -hmm. very 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 lucky I think that I had something that I could hang that hang that behavior on just to go back for a second you mentioned that you met your husband artist and painter Eric Fischel who at Nova Scotia was a professor there. And this was early in each of your careers as artists and your development. So, so what do you think it was that sparked an interest in each other, both as artists and human beings at that time? Well, I mean, we met, he was actually probably like <laughs> scoping out girls in a painting class. In the, <laughs> I was in the studio department because I, by the time I got to Nova Scotia, I was in the studio department. I wouldn't even have taken a painting class to save my life. And he, he just started talking to me one day and he started looking at my work and he was very insulting about my bad conceptual art, which I thought was unnecessary roughness. And I still do. Wow. You, you were yeah. painting like wood on wood or something. There was something. I like was, well, I, I was like, I was, you know, I was making sort of would say I was trying to make these sort of memory pieces where I would have like wood on a piece of paper sometimes or uh, some some kind of graphic aspect and below it I would have you know like some sort of poetic statement or quote or or structuralist reference or whatever and it was sort of about you know words meaning and image and how they clash or intersect. I mean, don't ask me because I never did figure it out, but <laughs> I know what I was doing. So it won't, when he came into my studio area, I had glued some pieces of wood on, I mean, not like big blocks, but there were a couple of chunks of wood or something here and there. And, and he was like, I don't see how anybody could ever say that they were making art by gluing wood onto a piece of paper. I thought, wow asshole <laughs> and that was I guess you'd have to bleep that sorry but um I just thought what a jerk you know so I didn't talk to him then until a party after that was in late fall and I talked to him again like at a 
winter party that I was at with students and faculty at which everyone was very stoned and he was very funny. And I really liked He, he was him. very, what did you say? I'm very missing. funny. He was incredibly funny. He was like, he was standing, there was kind of a small circle of people and people were all cracking jokes and he was by far the funniest person. And I thought, ah, not so bad. <laughs> <laughs> we got together and, and actually he should have, um, we were supposed to, I, we said like, let's, we should do an adventure together because we were having so much fun walking around, looking at things stoned and wouldn't it be great to go over to Europe and look at things and remark on them. Unstoned, we would have to be in those days. <laughs> so, so we had this plan to go over to Europe together for like a long trip, like a couple of months. And then two weeks before we were going, he just said, oh, by the way, I've decided I'm not going to go. I mean, you know, we were in a committee couple, obviously. Oh, but. wow. So I just went by myself, but it was such a great thing to do because not only did I, that's probably where I decided to paint landscapes without knowing it, because I realized when I was over there, I loved being alone. I really liked it. I just, I enjoyed it so much. Mm -hmm. And I never had, I'd never given myself the opportunity to really experience life by myself. And anyway. And you would you had never um, been to Europe prior to that, right? This was like the first time you were going to all the museums there and seeing it. Yeah, and I'd I'd gone specifically because I wanted to see all the art that was there that I'd seen in books, but not in real life. So I just did this. I made this grand itinerary for myself, and I had a URL pass, and you could stay in those days. You could stay in a little hotel that was like the equivalent of like four dollars a night in Provence for instance wow. <laughs> amazing um, not anymore <laughs> there were all these books on like called Europe on five dollars a day and <laughs> it was real like you could actually do that so I just kept going and it was it was wonderful I, I went from England down through France to Italy to Switzerland Germany Holland etc eventually Belgium back up to England. Um, and it was, it was wonderful. I wish people could still do that. Right. With the amount of freedom that you had at that time. So much is so less possible now. It's mm -hmm. just a drag just because of economics. Right. You know, you had said that there was a Vermeer painting that you saw in Europe during that trip that sort of stopped you dead in your tracks. I'm curious if that painting, if we can talk about it and, um, and if that yeah. had an effect on your change when you got back. Yeah, that was that was an amazing experience. I was going through the Moritz Swiss, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that exactly right, but the Moritz Swiss um, Museum in the Hague in Holland. And I went there. It was one of those museums that was on my checklist. And there are a lot of portraits in that museum. And I was kind of slightly trudging through the portrait, the endless, seemingly endless portrait galleries there. And I walked past the view of Delft, which is a painting by Vermeer, very famous, that Proust wrote an essay about it called um, Little Pane of Golden Light, Little Wall of Golden Light. I, I don't know exactly how it's translated, but I didn't know any of that then. So I walked by this painting and it was just like, you know, one of those cartoon things where I just stopped him and 
tracks and, and had to retrace my steps and then just stood and stared and looked at it like it was just something that like woke up every sense in me like the the light the space the air the the anti-gravitational quality of the the light in the sky it's it just everything was like just subtly exaggerated in this way that felt so physical and so beautiful to me there's a reflective water in the in the front and there's a couple of people going about their daily lives and then this kind of strip of the city of Delft itself and then the sky and the clouds and the on the top of the sky so they are so physical and they're so um resonant I don't know I just I didn't know why I was so transfixed by it and then I just continued after you know kind of being transfixed for a while and I did not think about it really much at all and then when I got back um, not immediately I did start doing landscape painting without a sense that I, I didn't do any paintings at that time that looked like that painting but eventually when I moved to New York, I did. And I started to think about the of canvas as like a proscenium, whereas where there's all this activity and emotion and um, and meteorological and other kinds of behavior, wind, whatever. And it wasn't until, oh gosh, it was several years after that that there was a show in which that painting was exhibited and I saw it and I was like, oh, this is that painting. And I just, I just about fell over. It was so profound to meet it again. Mm -hmm. and I hadn't been expecting it. I mean, maybe that sounds sort of like dumb of me, but it was just one of those things that went so deep in my self subconscious that it, it took a, it took a re-meeting <laughs> to recognize it. What was the first landscape that you did when you got back? And was there any hesitation when you did that first painting, since it was such a dramatic shift for you? Um, I, it was just it was just one of those things where I was working, you know, when you're in your studio and you're just horsing around. And it's such a it's such a blessing. I don't know. Another thing that I worry about about young artists these days is that like when you go to college, you're supposed to almost start turning yourself into your own manufacturer of your work or something. There's such a, there's such a feeling of pressure about get a gallery, you know, make sure you are people. I mean, young students have asked me about branding and I'm like, branding, God, what are you talking about? Where, how about art? But um, I did, you know, I, I was lacking any of that. I was just, I was waitressing and I was painting. And one day it was months after I got back from from Europe, but I was working in my studio and I'd gotten really interested in how would you show light, but I was kind of making sculptures and all these things with, um, you know, at that point, like I'd done some things where there were, there was tin scattered around it so that it would, it would, it would have like light, but it was like, I was being such a literalist about it. And then I was idly sitting there and a, an image popped into my head. And so I decided to make it and I didn't even have a canvas. I glued wood together and made a flat surface out of it and put white paint on it, probably house paint. And then just kind of used whatever I had to make this image. And, and there it was landscape, but it was like the whole, 
the whole experience of doing that was completely oneric. It really was like a walking dream and then I was done and then it was a landscape and uh oh, <laughs> how did that happen? <laughs> and that's, you know, just to be honest, that's exactly the weird way that, that I started making landscapes. Well, you've been called a neo-romanticist and also a luminist and light is clearly now central to your work. So what is it about light that fascinates you and keeps you fascinated? Well, it's, it's light to me is like being alive. I don't, I don't know how else to put it. It's just like, it's like the, it's like the, the, the beating heart of your eyes or the, you know, the, the not dead. (laughs) It's just so fundamental. It's just, it's just one of those things that I think is absolutely ridiculously thrilling. I still think it is. I'm sitting here looking out at our, our back, like, area where there's some, as I told you, there's some marshes out back and I'm looking at light striking trees and it's just, I'm like mesmerized by it. Maybe I'm just like a, a crow or some bird that, that finds shiny objects and brings it back to their nest and they're very happy with it. <laughs> <laughs> I think you've painted that the trees behind your house and the marshes and I've heard you describe how difficult and challenging those paintings of the trees and the the light amidst them was to to capture oh yeah painting forests is like ridiculously hard or drawing them it's ridiculously it's too much information and trying to decide because when i when i put an image together on the computer now usually um, I'm, I'm like adding and subtracting. And then when I start working on the drawing or the painting, I'm still adding and subtracting further. So like trying to decide how much information, but then the, the amount of information that you're given in a photograph useful as it is, is also daunting and confusing and overwhelming, at least for me. But the effect, the architectural effect, being able to visually walk around in an, and amongst the spaces that trees create is so alluring, I, it's irresistible. So being able to um, make those kinds of spaces is too attractive not to do. And my long standing method of making art is to like, just suddenly think, oh, I really wanna do another tree painting. <laughs> it's, so, it's so unregulated. So. I just, you know, it's like, I'll, I'll think like, oh, there's, there's going to be a pain in the ass again, but then I'm really happy when it's done. So, I mean, painting just never gets easier, by the way, it, it, at least not to me. I can paint better than I used to be able to, but I, but I don't find it easier. It's still like every single painting, I just, I start and I think like, oh God, this is so hard. And is this ever going to come out? I mean, there's every once in a while there's a painting that feels like it paints itself for you it's mm. like just a little like your fairy godmother like <laughs> painting with her wand and it's easy ish but most of the time it's just one challenge after another do you, do you ever stop a painting or is it always once you start you need to finish it see it through oh i always have to get it done and it's that's another really stupid habit that i have of like <laughs> having to bulldog something till it's in some sort of shape. And then I'll tell my, sometimes I'll tell myself that something's done and I have to go back into it. 
again and again. I know when it really is done. I just do, but getting myself to admit that, especially, if, I mean, you can become really exhausted and need some time off. So I guess my technique for that is to tell myself like that it it is done. And then like somewhere in the back of my head, knowing that I'm going to have to go back in at some point and fix a few things. Um, the, the weird thing about painting too, do I, are either of you painters? I have painted throughout my life, taking classes and I studied art history, but, but I wouldn't say I'm a painter. Yeah. I, I love to paint, but I don't want to use that term for myself. <laughs> okay. I mean, I should have assumed that you may be, but cause you're asking really great questions about it, but, um, it's just, you know, one of those things where you you don't want to be dishonest with yourself, but there is a necessity to, you know, give yourself hope if you've been working <laughs> on something for like, you know, three months and you're feeling like, God, it's either this painting or me, um, you know, makes it, it just makes it rather challenging. So you have to sort of give yourself a break, but I mean, there've, there've just been a few paintings that I've let go out into the world that I never felt good about and sure about. And actually, um, I don't want to talk about it, but one came back recently because it never got sold. And I'm thinking like the knife or a bonfire. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be well, happy you... to take it if you want to get it off your hands. I won't be happy for you to take it. <laughs> Um, you've also spoken about the crossover between technology and art. And you once said that the computer for you is the highest tech toy imaginable for what is basically a 16th century art form yeah. and, um, how you just like that contrast. Can you tell us more about what you mean by that? Well, it, I mean, just, just that it's so crazy that I would have found like the funnest sketch tool in the whole world. So I could take all these photographs that I have and, you know, something from something, some sky from New Mexico end up on um, the ground, you know, in my backyard or vice versa. And, and it's just, it's one of those great um, things that you can do as a painter. And then you still have to paint it, of course, but just getting the prep and getting something, something kind of put together that, excites you enough to devote the time to make it into a painting is, you know, just to be able to use a computer like that is, is great fun. I just think it's, a, I mean, there's an element of play that I think is essential to all art. And that for me is my toy. My computer is my toy. Mm -hmm. We're great friends. And <laughs> I took to it very easily. Once I, once I, once I did a little Photoshopping, I was like, oh, this is it. I was just so pleased to have found it. Because what I used to do is I used to make images that were like in my sketchbooks that were maybe three by five inches-ish, maybe a little larger. And I would like sketch out a basic composition for a painting that I wanted to make. And then I'd, I'd redraw it or I'd draw on it over and over. And I'd use like white out and drawn to that. I mean, they were really a mess sometimes, but, and then end up working from that. But now I don't, I can do a lot of that on the computer and it just facilitates changes that I want to see that I can do faster um, on the computer in many instances than in a drawing. Mm -hmm. Although I was just thinking the other day that there, I started to get this 
idea for a painting in my head and I think I might have to draw it. I don't think I can take a picture of it. I don't even know what that means, but um, sometimes that's necessary. Or if I'm, you know, I mean, now like the, like the iPhone I have, I can take pictures in the middle of the night, hmm. like with just a little bit of moonlight and it puts the light in and then I can readjust it so that it looks more like what my eyes were seeing instead of the camera eye. Um, so the, I mean, the possibilities are fantastic, but I, I've also, when I first started doing work that I produced using Photoshop and the computer, I thought like, oh no, I'm just gonna be copying the sketch. But um, I quickly learned to trust, just as when I'm cooking from a recipe, mm -hmm. I will never follow it exactly. So, um, <laughs> you know, things, things become digressive fast with me. And um, I've, I've been able to trust myself to not just copy something. Mm -hmm. I, I find, I just, I go back to the seascapes and it seems like sometimes there's almost, it's, it's so realistic, but there's a slight shift that almost like the brain can pick up, but maybe not the eye, which makes mm -hmm. it disquieting. And I wonder if that in those types of works using Photoshop, if you think that has that effect. Well, um, I mean, how in the world could you see like dot motion of a wave like that? Look at VSL right. versus like 17th century people who depicted storms at sea where the, the waves are all pretty regular and... <laughs> you know, they just didn't have that option. And to be able to, and what I what I try to do with mine, what you might be seeing is I try to make the, the water feel slightly more, I usually use this term, I hope it makes sense, but I try to make the water more muscular. I try to give it a little- Yes, makes a lot of sense, yeah. That's what it is, yes. Yeah, so it's actually, but that's, see, that's what's so great about painting is you can make a sky heavy, and water light, or you can make you can make waves massively heavy and massively muscular. When whereas, like if you look at the photograph that I worked from on that painting that you referenced, for instance, when you look at the photograph of that painting, the photograph is like it looks almost light. Hmm. The whole thing looks kind of light. And then I realize like where I've been in making the painting because I can I can feel the the weight of the water um, and its muscularity in what I've eventually been able to do with it. And that is definitely a kind of success for me, even though, you know, painters notoriously, like you get something done that was really hard and this on to the next thing. <laughs> <laughs> but you have to talk about, <laughs> okay, on to the next one. You know. <laughs> for the weary. <laughs> well, when you talk about the wave being muscular or, I mean, you also talk a lot about tension and release in your work. Yeah, and that's, well, all of those things like, okay, so weight, weight and balance and compositional tension where you, you, that could be just about, it's, it just goes right back to abstraction, formalist abstraction, and which, you know, there is an argument that has been made by Robert Rosenblum, among others, very eloquently, that abstraction and landscape are very related. Mm -hmm. And if, you know, if you move a tree to the edge of uh, the canvas, you can get like an actual tension between like the edge and the tree itself. 
that will start a reverberation that goes through the picture. And it's not like if it were the subject matter of your picture, then that would be that would be a different picture than the kind of picture that I make. But when I'm making a, a painting with something like that, then I'm looking for a certain kind of generation of tension that that goes into the next area that goes into the next area so the viewer is reading all of those built intentions and releases it could be a color thing it could be the way something's painted it could be I mean it's there's so many ways to do that they're really innumerable so um it would be I'd have to talk to you looking at a painting to show you mm -hmm. where things are happening in them but I make very deliberate decisions often that are based on um, making sure that there is there is a balance, but that there's a, a kind of ongoing conversation about tension and release overall in the whole painting, just to give it a kind of an activated surface. Right. You know, I, I just want to mention, I, this is such a coincidence, but I had Robert Rosenblum at NYU right before he passed away. Oh. And well, sort of while I was taking his neoclassicism and romanticism course and reading his book, I saw your work sort of like at the same time for the first time up close. So I don't know, that's just so weird to me that you mentioned him. I don't, I don't, I don't know if that coincidence means anything, but <laughs> to oh, me, sure. that's just very funny. That's really great. I mean, he, I read that book thinking like, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> yeah, he was such a great, I mean, I didn't, I, I'm sorry to say, but I didn't appreciate him until like sort of after the fact and looking at that book again, but he was such, I mean, just, I, I understand your work so much because of, of people like him. I, I really think he clarified a lot in painting. That was, um, so that's, I'm so happy that you mentioned him because I haven't thought about him in so long. So. Yeah. I wish that we could figure out a better word for a better word than romanticism, because mm. I think there's like, there's something that, romantic painting represents and I can't I can't get too scholarly about this because I'm not well enough read on it I don't think but there's definitely something a lot more complex about romanticism than a certain kind of moodiness right. <laughs> and all the things that it's associated with I mean to me it's you know great great romanticism is like well I mean there's been an argument that it starts with Goya for instance Mm -hmm. which is a good argument to me. It huh. really is like kind of a, a life and death thing that, that has continued up through the centuries. And like, why would, why would it have been identified as emerging at a certain time and place um, if Goya could be called a progenitor? And then how does that end up with someone like Caspar David Friedrich? And what's the difference between Friedrich and someone like um, Martin Johnson Heed, where you're looking at something that's on the face of it, quotidian and simple, but actually has incredible complexity and talk about tension, for instance, mm -hmm. or Albert Pinkham Ryder, and there's just like so many manifestations of it, like try, trying to imagine a redefinition of romanticism and how it could, it could exist today. I mean, I, I think your reference to Rothko is a good one because I think someone like Rothko and the way that art sits sits in front of you and um, confirms your existence for you and and 
the way that you're able to to project into it. I mean, those things are it, it's massively important as a way of realizing that you, I don't know, are alive. It's like it's a <laughs> it's an it's a fundamental thing. It seems <laughs> fundamental and not like a dreamy Philip <laughs> on the rest right. of life. Right. It's a romanticism sometimes has a, a sense of frivolity attached to it as well. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, don't you think rom-com before you think of anything else when you think of the word <laughs> romantic? I do. So. Yeah. But I'd love to circle back to your early days in New York and how it was for you entering the art world in the late 70s and early 80s. You were there as a young artist making significant success, doing a show a year from 1981 onwards at an incredibly exciting time in the art world. So what was that like for you as a young female artist at the time? Oh, um, really challenging, really scary and thrilling, really frustrating because I, you know, my subject matter, I, I mean, I lucked out, I think, because of, you know, the new image painting show that was at the Whitney are you familiar with that? There was this painting um, show that that kind of gave credence to imagery again, period. Like it had been so abandoned. It was like Susan Rothenberg, for instance, right. and David True, who's probably not very well known at all anymore. But it was just this idea that, and most of the, the imagery in the new image show was, was very simplified. It, everything looked simplified. Um, some of it was ironic and sort of funny, but there was, it suddenly seemed like you could make something that was a picture of something that, that had a, a new importance to it and use and excitement. So I kind of lucked into that, I think, because I was headed for something that was a lot more um, detailed and more specifically about light and space than uh, kind of a graphic, a more graphic rendering of those things, which is what was more present in that show, I'd say generally. Mm -hmm. But also just, and also just the hand, that was really, really important that people like Susan Rothenberg were painting and it was a celebration of the hand and, you know, like anti-minimalism in that respect. Right. Um, so to be able to see the hand and the hand is so important in painting. I mean, even in, uh, you know, people, people's highest compliment for me sometimes when they don't know anything about art, they'll say, oh, it's like a photograph. And I just, ah, after I stop wincing, I usually say, thank you, because they don't know, but, um, you know, just the, the presence of someone's hand in, in real art is like absolutely crucial from everywhere from a Holbein drawing to Susan Rothenberg. It's just, it's this long, it's this long connection that we have to our bodies that are, that is really important in being able to perceive what painting really is. I hope that people are still seeing paintings like that now because it seems like with our kind of disembodied communicative world at the moment, made worse by COVID, um, we could be in danger of really 
transposing ourselves into some imaginary beings that we're not. But but the presence of the hand in, in my work has always been really important to me and remains so. So the new image painting show gave uh, you know, an acceptance to that for the art world that really blew the door open and allowed people like me and Eric and everybody at that time to be able to, that I knew who was interested in, in imagery to be able to find a niche. I mean, yeah. David was a good friend of ours at the time and it was helpful for him too. Yeah. And it was a real return to painting and, and yeah. it was just so incredibly embraced at that time. Oh, it was absolutely thrilling. Really like so exciting. And the, the mood in the art world then was just like electric and cohesive. Mm -hmm. I haven't felt it for a very, very long time. I like, I like that things are have been so pluralistic since the, let's say since like the nineties. But because um, I don't, it, it's it's made it more, it's made it more possible for women to do better in the art world and blah 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 blah. Without there being this kind of like, you know, the neo expression this thing was so male dominated. Right. right. God bless it. It was all about painting. Yay, but. But then it was like, it was kind of returned to like the, you know, the bigger, the more chunky, <laughs> you know, what, man, whatever. What, what was that like? I'm just, you know, you, I, I think back, you know, when Pollock came out and Time Magazine put him on and, you know, it was this big deal and suddenly people all over knew about Pollock. And I feel like it was the same way with sort of that Mary Boone kind of crowd with included Eric and David and Julian and what that was like insane because it was like taking them to this sort of rock star status. Did you, and I'm, I'm trying to say how I can phrase this, but to be amidst that must've been exciting, but was there any part of that that felt that, um, that other artists weren't getting the same amount of, atten of attention that should have been, that it was a big PR thing. I mean, it was justifiable as amazing work, but I'm just curious of your thoughts about that sort of PR blitz that happened. Well, I mean, three words, Carrie James Marshall mm. was, at the same exact time and he didn't I mean I remember seeing his work postage stamp size at the back of Art in America or you know Art Forum magazine with a little review hmm. you know I I glanced I remembered his paintings I remember seeing them like that in that scale in those magazines and thinking like mm -hmm. but not having a reaction hmm. so because he was black boom that's it he should have been up there in the whole pantheon. I mean, a lot of this painting, the painting that was going on in Neo-Expressionism was really specifically figurative, including like all the Germans and all the Italians, like everybody. So I knew I was doing landscape, so I was a little apart, but I also knew that it was a boys club thing. And absolutely, there were tons of people that were left out of that. So, And yet you weren't, entirely left out of that because you were having your own success just in a different way it seems it wasn't yeah, I mean, the paparazzi yeah I, I, it's, it's always for my my whole life is going to be about how lucky I've been how fortunate that I was have I was able to stop waitressing and I could just paint and then you know eventually like lead this wonderful life and you know, being able to continue to paint, how, how amazing is that? So 
you know, you got to balance the accolades or the jealousy or the whatever against all of that. And it's, it's not been, of course, easy to be living with another artist who's more successful, but I don't know. I mean, I'm relatively optimistic. I'm a generally happy person and I don't like being unhappy. So <laughs> I'm, you know, just kind of willfully ignoring things that could make me a little crazy. But those things are unfair and still women don't make as, as much money and still are not receiving the same. And I'm not talking just about myself. It's just very, very hard to be acknowledged in the same way. Right. As men are, so. Right. Yes, and, and um, I think it's worth naming and having that awareness and it, at the same time, continuing doing what you're doing because that's how things shift as well yeah I mean I I there have been gosh I mean so many great art shows where I, I go to look at them and I think oh I wish I painted like that I'm going to try one when I, get home. <laughs> I can't make paintings that aren't my paintings I can I'm it turns out I can only make the art that I make because that's who I am as an artist and you know, I it just, it's, it's just one of those funny things, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's all sorts of um, woulda, coulda, shoulda, but I still feel like I've had an incredibly great um, life and I'm super lucky and I'm very, I've been very, very fortunate also that there's been a, a pretty solid bunch of collectors who see my work and like it and who've purchased it and continue to purchase it. And now I'm, and now I'm with Miles McHenry, who's a fantastic dealer, just wonderful. Mm -hmm. I've really enjoyed working with him. So that's another like ultra fortunate thing. You, do you think today, I mean, there's so much you know, activism with, um, with regard to climate change. Do you see your paintings in, in that context in any way, especially as that conversation is getting more and more important? Oh God. Yes. I mean, yes, of course it's, I'm like a big softy and I cannot believe that animals in Africa are going extinct. I can't believe that we're wrecking our planet. It makes me insane. I've always had an activist streak. Like when the gorilla girls were active in New York, I was working with the Women's Action Coalition. And we were more like a social change thing than a protesting the art world imbalance thing. But we were doing actions and we had, you know, we were out on the streets and whatnot. And I've, so I've long had an activist history and concern and my paintings, I cannot say that I've made them as any kind of protest or deliberate raising of awareness but who wouldn't look at the world in its beauty and in its power and in its deserved recognition, you know, to be respected and not treated it respectfully? Well, it turns out like pretty much every big industrialist. So it's so if my even though people would ask me years ago, like, are these paintings about ecology or something like that? And I go, well, no, not really. They're something that I'm just doing because I'm, I'm expressing myself spiritually and blah, blah, blah. And in fact, 
it's really important to me at this point, if, if people look at them and, and feel the, the preciousness and the intangibility and the passage of time and everything about um, the world outside ourselves that deserves to be respected because people are really bad at sharing, it turns out. <laughs> We're not sharing the world with the rest of the world, the rest of the beings and the world and the life here. And I mean, honestly, you shouldn't get me started on this because I'll get into factory farming and everything else that I detest. And hmm. long story short, I hope that if people look at my work in addition to feeling a, a kind of a personal sense of their own spiritual expansiveness, um, that they would take away the, the importance of, the, of what is outside of us as a way of defining ourselves at least. You know, things always have to be put in the sense of it having a human perspective, usually by referencing natural resources, which makes me also completely insane. Like the idea that we should protect the, the wealth of this planet and treat it with a sharing attitude, having to do with it providing natural resources for us. I mean, how egocentric is that? It makes me nuts. Right. We should want to have wilderness that's wilderness where we don't have to go like stomp around on it and then use it for something or find precious minerals on it. Or I don't care if, if we get some chemical out of some mysterious plant in the Brazilian rainforest and that's why we should save it. That's the stupidest idea to me in the whole world. It's like, let's let's just figure out how to like not poison our environment. Maybe we'd have less cancer and maybe we wouldn't have to go destroy anything. But but to to like to summarize the importance of of saving the Brazilian rainforest in this instance for ourselves in case we find a cure for our problems. Oh, seriously? <laughs> I just yeah. can't yeah. even. I think we need to stop calling the world natural resources and just recognize it as its own entity with its own. It's nice that people are very excited about Susan Samard now, for instance, you know about her, the person who discovered that the fungal network underneath trees and the way the trees talk to each other and share nutrients mm -hmm. and stuff. So it's great that that's happening. Um, I like all of those things, but there's an overwhelming um, reluctance to do that on the part of the people that are making money off of our natural resources. Right. Right. And that's always, that's unfortunately always been, and hopefully people are more wise to that, or, or at least things are changing in some regard or, or will. But, I hope so. Yeah. I hope so. I just don't know because it's so worrisome, the direction that we've taken. You know, yeah. I mean, we're, we're looking at our own apocalypse for Christ's sake. Yeah. I mean, do you think that the current turbulence of our times has an effect on your work directly? And if so, how do you see that manifesting? Yes. After September 11th, I didn't think that I had any business expressing anything about it with my subject matter necessarily, but I found myself, I did three paintings after that that were all about September 11th, that I really haven't made a big thing about it, but um, for me, they're personally effective and were a result of the, the emotion that I was feeling 
-hmm. after that. And certainly I think things now are affecting my work all the time. Um, so I'm sure it is, but I oftentimes understand things about my paintings and drawings in retrospect. I'm not the, because I'm working pretty intuitively, I'm not the sort of person that knows that they're making a painting about, we have to stop this, you know, this crazy political direction the country has taken. I just don't think or work like that. And then I'll, I'll see something about a work oftentimes like a year or so later, and I'll kind of realize, oh, that was about, that was about that moment, you know, mm -hmm. with, with something that's not directly related, but they clearly affected choices and maybe a choice of subject matter, the mood of the art, whatever. And how do you think in general, the role of the artist plays in our culture in terms of confronting these things, maybe not so directly and so consciously, but the importance, because you and Eric right now are working collaboratively to bring the arts, for example, to the center of Sag Harbor and that experience. And, and I imagine that that has an important role. You're also, it's also going to be a work study place, I believe, or residency, artist residency um, called The Church. Do you want to talk a little bit about the church and how it came about and its mission? Um, yeah, sure. The church was um, something that um, became available to us after Eric had bought a small house that was in the village of Sag Harbor, and he wanted to turn it into an arts residency. This was a longstanding dream of his. And then the the church, which is actually catty corner to that house, um, came on the market after having been owned by three different people. The church is so cool. It's just yeah. really like one of the most beautiful buildings imaginable too. We did it so it's like old and new at the same time. Um, they're wow. like the coolest things about it. And the, the wood in it is all over 300 years old and figured out by our facilities director, who's a wood nut. And it's, it's given us, this is a total unintended consequence of loving it and wanting it to be able to be seen instead of covering it up in any way. Mm -hmm. It's given the church amazing acoustics. So when we do music, like a piano and cello sonata, oh, that was premiered here not that long ago by a guy named Bruce Wolfsoff, the sound was just unbelievable. It's, it's an amazing, amazing place to be able to give intimate performances. So how yeah. great. It's yeah. really exciting. It was a deconsecrated Methodist church that like 14 years ago now was first sold to a guy who was going to turn it into condominiums. And everyone was really sad about that. And then it was going to become a manufactory for a woman named Elizabeth Dow who was a textile designer and a very good one. And everyone was happy about that. And then she couldn't afford to fix it. And it was very dilapidated. And then it was bought by a young, younger guy who had an even younger wife and they were gonna start a family. And he was gonna turn it into a McMansion, which everyone was horrified at just because it's not what Sag Harbor has represented as it's right. relatively, you know, like undeveloped. 
has been until now. I mean, we're just looking at the maw of destruction right now, but um, it had been at that time, not known for McMansions. So everyone was unhappy about that. And then they got divorced, which is sad, but um, we just happened to be weirdly at the right place in the right place at the right time. And we're able to buy it for like so much less than it was on the market for. It's not even funny. And a lot of the structural work had been done. So um, our plan was to have a residency there as per Eric's dream, but also make it into a, a creativity center. And by that, I mean, yes, we want to, and we have had exhibitions there um, and we want to continue showing art there, but we also, for instance, in March, we're going to have a day that's a creativity conference and we'll have people who are creatives in all different fields, like a woman who's a primatologist who's single-handedly saving the lemur population of Madagascar. She was the first person who seriously started making a difference there to what is otherwise one of the most burned out places on earth. It's horrifying. It used to be all jungle and now it's cattle ranging. Mm -hmm. Terrifying. Anyway, um, she's going to be presenting. There's an entomologist. There's um, a guy named Bran Farron, who was one of the Disney Imagineers, um, one of the first, and et cetera, et cetera. So we're having we're having things like that to make people think about what it, how how are people creative, and also honoring the history of Sag Harbor as a place that has, um, starting from even before the whaling industry per se was a port that was used for trade um, and, and had a contact with other parts of the world that are significantly further flung than most of the agrarian towns that surround it. So East Hampton and South Hampton and Amagansett and Bridgehampton, all of those other towns out here that are known um, had more agrarian pasts, but Sag Harbor was always its own weird little um, connected village. And it has a crazy history of like astronomers and write many, many, many writers and some artists and et cetera, et cetera. And the more we've gotten into this, the more we've discovered amazing people and astonishing histories that we hadn't known about. So it's been a labor of love and also really fun mm -hmm. to learn about all this stuff and to celebrate it in all sorts of different forms. We, we also have a, a program called Knowledge Fridays that just started up and then just stopped because of Omicron, thank you very much. But um, the first person that talked about that was a guy who um, wrote, his name is Bill Persky and he wrote um, the Mary Tyler Moore show and started that girl and has been a comedy writer all his life. He's 90 now and he was, absolutely fascinating and so the the kind of creativity that he emanated was so electric and and fun and funny and then the second person was a guy who's the world's foremost diamond counterfeiter who has replicated the hope diamond the cullinan the kohinoor i mean it goes on and on wow. and, <laughs> and 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 it was just an amazing conversation and he has a place out here in Sag Harbor. he lived out here all during the pandemic and is out here all the time. And he has a studio out here and brought <laughs> example. It was just amazing. So we're doing a lot of out of the box and traditional things. And we've, we had a wonderful 
children's art camp this summer. That was not our art camp, but we hosted it for um, a thing called the community, this, the, um, sorry, Hamptons Community Outreach. And that was also great. So we have all sorts of things in the works for it and we'll continue to expand it as we can. You, you had also been involved in restoring uh, a movie theater, is that correct? Oh yeah, yes, I was the chairperson. <laughs> yeah, I, the old irascible, but fascinating owner of the old Sag Harbor Cinema had come to me in July of 2016 and said that he, had, he and his wife both showed up and they said that they had decided that they wanted to sell the cinema to a not-for-profit. And they thought that the non-for-profit that I was involved in, the Sag Harbor Partnership, which is a 501c3, should do that. And I said, we definitely will, <laughs> because I knew that everybody on our board would be enthusiastic. So we committed to doing this. We were going to close on December 28th that year. We had a date. On December 16th, a fire burned the cinema, uh, about a third of it, completely destroyed. Um, it took another several months to get him back on track, the owner, because he realized he could sell it to a developer. But luckily, he did end up working with us, and we were able to purchase it. So then we had to raise the money to purchase it from him at the end of um, 2017, and then we had to also buy enough money to rebuild it. And it was quite an effort. So I was the chairperson of that effort. Huh. And now it's operational and it's great. Yay. Have <laughs> the photos look great. I mean, it looks really amazing that just the restoration and everything. Well, we also have an artistic director who's a genius. I mean, her the things that she's showing are unbelievable, like popular, you know, first run movies and really obscure stuff it's it's a joy it's been really a great satisfaction so in so, a way it's been revamped altogether and brought more life to it sounds like yeah entirely and our projection on our sound are perfect I mean, they're just amazing amazing rooms and when we were talking about the theaters i had to learn about this because i was saying wait why do we have to spend so much money and why do we have to hire why do we have to have to hire like specialists in sound and, and do all this projection expense. And we're a 501c3, we can't be wasting public funds. And she just stuck it out and said, like, you'll see, this is gonna be an amazing cinema. We're going to have a national reputation immediately. And we absolutely did. So I'm thrilled and it's been a big, it was a big effort. It was a big learning experience because it also put quite a crimp in my studio time, but you know, it's done now. So it's, it's been great. And this, and the church is operational and we're just going to continue um, with all of these, these dreams and great ideas that we have and keep pushing it forward. And we're just excited about everything. It's made, it's made this whole community a very, very rich cultural place. That's so, wonderful. That's, that's great. I mean, it's, it sounds like you've so much going on the sky's the limit, really. And the more out of the box, the better, because we want to be able to surprise people with things that they weren't expecting. And just, you know, the idea, again, is to like make people think more about themselves being creative entities, too, and how creativity and the arts changes 
your life and your mind and your sense of fulfillment and you know what's really important all of that is what's really important at the end of this we do this thing called the quick draw six questions in 60 seconds one word answers are you game okay sure <laughs> sure i am okay alex take it away okay what are you listening to right now i'm usually listening to bach what are you reading I'm reading a book called Trees by John Fowles. Favorite film this past year? Power of the Dog. Favorite song? Of all time? Waters of March. Antonio okay. Carlos Jovin, The Waters of March. Favorite escape? You know, honestly, the first thing that came to mind was reading. So I'm just going to go with reading. Pandemic answer, let's put it that way. Scuba diving. <laughs> Favorite guilty pleasure? I don't know. Gosh, that's a good question. Uh, red wine. <laughs> it's a good one. Great. April, thank you so much. Thanks thank so much, so April. Much. Alex, I'm going to tell the ocean hi from you. Yes, please Aww. do. <laughs> please do. I appreciate that. Thank you. Art Laws is produced by Alex Zappa and Robin Rosenfeld. Music is by Voidcore. And the episode you just heard was recorded in Los Angeles. Thanks for listening to Art Laws. I'm Alex Zappa. And I'm Robin Rosenfeld. Follow us on Instagram at Art Laws Pod. And subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a comment and give us a rating. We'll be back soon with more. Bye. Bye.